Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the world, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today I am very happy to be joined by an old friend and colleague, Bridge Colby, better known formally or to the police as Elbridge A. Colby. Uh, Bridge, as many of you know who uh, listen to this podcast, uh, is the co-founder and principal at the Marathon Initiative. But before that, he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Pentagon from 2017 to 2018, where he was the lead architect of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Uh, Bridge is a fixture in Washington, D.C. and other points around the globe, uh, and is the author most recently of The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, a book that has made a lot of waves and we're going to be talking about amongst other things today. So, Bridge Colby, welcome to the Pacific Century. Great to be with you, Misha, and with your, your listeners. Thanks for having me on. Well, there's there's obviously a lot of talk, uh, not only about the book, uh, Strategy of Denial, uh, but about Increasingly, the issues surrounding the book, i.e., how does America defend and protect its interests in the Indo-Pacific, specifically with regard to Taiwan, but much more broadly than that. But before we get into that, which is what readers uh, and listeners really want to to think about, um, we also want to ask a question of you, which is, how did you get involved in, in this specifically? How did you get involved in the defense side of things versus, let's say, uh, the diplomatic side of things or, or the, uh, the, um, the intellectual side of things as a professor? What drove you to where you are? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. And you, you and I go back. We, we first got to know each other when, at, at, at Yale when I was in law school. So I might have gone. You were, you were teaching uh, uh, Japanese history, right, as I, as I recall. That's right. And, That's and, right. Uh, I mean, I think in, in that sense, I could have gone a different direction. I would say I've always been interested in national security and kind of, you know, I, I guess national security would probably be the best, the best way to put it. Uh, since I was a little, a little kid, I was joking with, uh, with uh, somebody recently. I probably spent too many, too many, too much time with my my nose in a book uh, uh, growing up. Although I did play some sports, so. Um, but I think what's drawn me into this field in particular, and in the sort of defense strategy field is I think, you know, I have this kind of baseline interest in national security, but what I really um, have sort of glommed onto or, or hooked onto in the strategic discussion and, and is a kind of, it works with my uh, mind, if you will. I don't know if that's good for everybody else, but I appreciate it in the sense that it's a, uh, you know, a kind of a logical and abstract and sort of, you know, deductive way of approaching things um, that I think, you know, I, I, I kind of come out of, uh, from, from when I was in law school, I did a lot of work on nuclear strategy and it's a similar, uh, kind of way. And it's, you know, different than, I think they're compatible, but it's a different way than saying having an area expertise, obviously you do a really important strategic work as well, but having depth in a culture or a specific, you know, set of issues. I mean, what I enjoy about this kind of strategic thinking is it's a, you know, it's obviously very important and significant, but what's appealed to me as, as a, as a thinker, as a person is that you you can try to develop an argument about what's best for the country. And it's, I think it's a rigorous argument. That's, that's probably something I did get from law school. My main legal advice is don't take legal advice from me. But like, (laughs) I think one thing is I appreciate this kind of rigorous form of let's understand what we're trying to do. What's the value and how do we, uh, you know, how, how do we best uh, approach that? And I think, 
you know, I think that's my conceit. And it seems, you know, I think, uh, unfortunately, circumstances are, are, seem to support this, that it's imp- increasingly important that we do do this kind of rethinking, that we go back to the sort of basic, you know, in the same sense that a business would go through a strategy rethink or something. If I were more interested in, in that world, I would probably be drawn to the st- strategic, you know, how do you help companies rethink, um, you know, look at their market, uh, you know, look at, at potential opportunities, look at their, you know, what kind of assets they have available. And th- that sort of reassessment, uh, I find, um, I find, I find, you know, compelling. Yeah. So actually, before we, we dive into the, to the specifics, you actually raise a very interesting question. One that I've, I've thought a lot about, I think, uh, as you mentioned, we first met, you were in law school and I was teaching and we were both, um, uh, at least peripherally, if not directly involved in, in the grand strategy course, uh, at Yale, uh, with the professors there and, and some of the people, certainly we, we knew them and, and that, uh, may have been the first course specifically of that kind, of its kind, uh, but it's been replicated at, at other places, of course. Uh, and now it seems like everybody's doing grand strategy. And in fact, early in the book, you make a very, I think, important distinction about we're talking strategy and not grand strategy. We're actually talking about specific military strategy. But since you brought it up, you sort of, you know, you opened the Pandora's box. Let me ask you, how do you think about, assess, or even grade how good we are as a country at strategic thinking. I think there's there, there could be an argument to be made that we may not be so great or not as good as we think, given the number of mistakes we've made, the problems we face, um, the surprises. I always talk a lot about strategic surprise. We seem to live in an era of strategic surprise. How do you assess how good we are at thinking strategically? Well, traditionally pretty good, but recently pretty bad, I would agree with you. I mean, I think if you look at at the long arc of American history, I mean, I think we've had a tremendous advantages. So, you know, probably not, we shouldn't get too arrogant about it. But if you look, you know, you go back to the founders in the early Republic, I think they kept their eye on the ball in terms of, you know, not getting embroiled in, in European conflicts unnecessarily. I mean, there was the War of 1812, but, but generally focusing on internal development and expansion, sort of sometimes ruthless, say, in the war in Mexico, but really focused there. And then, and then when we did become a world power, um, you know, I mean, I probably some things I, I certainly would have done differently, say, in, in lead up to the Second World War and so forth. But on the whole, you know, pretty, pretty good. The Europe first strategy in the Second World War, for instance. And, and then in the Cold War, I think, you know, pretty, pretty well. I mean, some mistakes early on, probably not recognizing the Soviet threat, um, the, the Korea imbroglio, and then of course Vietnam, but on the whole, you know, we got it right. We, we, we had sort of tremendous success without a massive total war with the Soviet union. So I think that's pretty good. I think in the, since the collapse of the Soviet union, I, I would say pretty poorly, um, because, you know, in some sense, you know, it's structural, it's a feature of unipolarity. We probably became hubristic, uh, you know, arrogant. And so one of my kind of critiques and i think i make it in the book and you're uh, you're ge- generous to draw this point i think it's the it's it's a critical one is you know this is a book i mean look i think because it's about war and peace a defense strategy has to be connected to some kind of grand strategy but i think a lot of our grand quote unquote grand strategy debate over the last generation is more like a form of rhetoric you know it's a series of of aspirations or a kind of like hortatory element Um, that's like, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to spread peace in the world. We need to spread democracy. We need to solve the climate with cooperation. It's a a lot of kind of 
um, fuzziness and, and sort of aspirations. And that's, you know, my view, and I say it in the book, is that a strategy is really, it's not a clever, sometimes people think, a, you know, I mean, literally a stratagem is a clever plan. But when I think of a strategy, it's really more of like a deductive framework, but it should help us make decisions in conditions of scarcity to get back to the market analogy. And I think a lot of our, what passes for our grand strategy debate over the last generation is more just kind of expressions of, you know, sort of vague or, or, or sort of ridiculously uh, exaggerated ambition. So I think, you know, if, if our debate gets back into a clear conception of what our strategy, you know, what I'm kind of talking about, even if people don't always agree to me, I think that's, I think that's a step forward. Uh, so the, um, Actually, before we again, I, I I have all these questions related to the specifics, but you keep raising things that are are jogging other thoughts. So before I forget, because uh, as as regular listeners know, I will forget almost immediately what I wanted to ask. <laughs> um, what do you? What would you recommend though? Then not though. What would you recommend then for the budding strategist? What are you said going back to sources, right, or going back to the beginnings? What mm-hmm. are if you were teaching? And I'm sure you will be one day if you haven't already, Strategy 101. What are the fundamental texts that a listener who wants to do exactly what you said, get into a rigorous frame of mind, a logical uh, approach to the question, and not simply some sort of, um, you know, exhortatory, yeah. this is, we need to do this, and every every person's idea is equal to everyone else's, but really based on on fundamental facts and, and ground truth, as they used to say. What is it? What would you What would you say we should be reading? Well, that's a that's a that's a great question, Misha. I mean, I look obviously I'd put you know Clausewitz and Thucydides and yada yada yada. Okay, great. Um, and those are those are the ur texts. I, you know, you can t- I always thought you could tell a lot about a a book by you know which of several. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sort of a realist and and hence I quote Clausewitz. I remember a project from CNAS like 15 years ago, and they they quoted the the feng shui handbook at the beginning. And I was like, I don't know, that's some other, that's some other group, uh, you know, intellectual group. But, um, but I would say what I would add to that. So among the canons, I would recommend Nicholas Spikeman. Yes. Love Spikeman. We're big Spikeman fans here. Yeah. That I think is very like-minded or sort of, I feel in the shadow and it's that sort of thing. But I think what I would say, one of the, one of the things that I think I, I sort of selfishly, I really got as a, you know, a self-styled, I suppose, strategic thinker from my Pentagon experience and that you've, you've wrestled with uh, very admirably as well, Misha, is military strategy has a kind of clarity and sort of concreteness that I think encourages more of a reckoning with constraints and trade-offs and so forth. So in a sense, I would read fewer national security strategies, uh, certainly of the last generation. And in, by, if you were teaching a strategy class, and I'm not, you know, to, to, to hammer everything as a nail, but I, I, I'm not saying that everything is reducible to military strategy, but it, it would be interesting as a teaching exercise to really focus on defense strategies because they and not all of them have done this, but but they they tend to have to make relatively concrete decisions about it within the context of constraints, and that I think is a useful exercise because you know for instance you could look at the same thing and say our economic power you know say sanctions sanctions are not I mean you know this very well sanctions are not you know unlimited in terms of their efficacy or their or their staying power or what have you, but I think understanding because I think what what I would say to budding strategists is you should be reckoning with the realities of the situation. And my 
you know, particularly in the last few weeks, one of my big critiques of the sort of traditional poobahs of the strategic debate is that they're kind of ignoring or denying the reality of scarcity. Um, and I don't think that's, I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's the right way to do things. I think that's probably not as hard of a sell to younger people who didn't grow up in unipolarity. But I think a lot of people who are, say, 60 and over, they're still living basically mentally in the world of 1999 or 2005 or something. And I don't, so I don't think they're actually helping us grapple with, well, you know, just to take an example, that it's not just military. We don't, you, you don't like the way the Saudis are treating the Houthis or what the, the Khashoggi issue, but we also maybe need their help for, for oil. How do you, how do you like rack and stack that in a strategy? What's your approach? Do you try to fudge it? Do you take one course or the other? But that's sort of where I think our conversation should be um, rather than, you know, we need to stand tall and exercise leadership or we need to just come home and, you know, these kind of very broad kind of, um, I think, uh, ultimately sort of too general uh, right. sort of level of debate. Um, and we're going to, I think a little bit later on, we'll get to that specifically okay. with regard to Ukraine and Russia, because that's the other, the, obviously the great, uh, the great issue right now. Um, uh, unfortunately, this is not a podcast of calling out people by name and naming and shaming, and <laughs> it would be far more popular were it that, and I understand <laughs> that. But, you know, immediately some names, and I'm sure all the listeners can bring up the same names to their mind that are coming up to my mind as you say this. Uh, and I'm going to try to weave it in, in in a responsible way, though I do want to make one one note for uh, the elders of of this podcast, like myself, it just, it just, it just, it stopped me for a second when you said, you know, those who who uh, uh, don't remember a, a, a time of polarity, of unipolarity, right? You were talking about those who are younger may be more sensitive to the concept of scarcity. You said, unlike those who, uh, you know, who remember unipolarity, I'm thinking, well, what about those of us who remember bipolarity? <laughs> I mean, are we, we're not even relevant to the debate anymore. Uh, no, you're not over 60. Gone. You're not over 60. I was, I, I gave a generous. Not quite though. I see it. I see it over the hill. So uh, no, but it's, it is actually very interesting. You know, that, that move from the cold war, which dominated strategic thinking, obviously for an entire generation, plus the grappling during the unipolar period of, of, of what it meant. Uh, and then that, of course, in a sense being fractured, you know, by, by nine 11, even though you were unipolar, there was a completely different sort of, I like to think of it. Maybe it's too simplistic, a Huntingtonian return. Now you've got something that you thought was in the rearview mirror is right in front of you. And, and now today we're actually almost going back. Well, now we're almost back. And I'd like to get your thought of it mm -hmm. in some ways, again, maybe too simplistic to the 19th century. You know, we've moved into now great power competition. Of course, that's a subtitle of your book, American defense in an age of great power conflict. So before we get to what might equally have been called the strategy of uh, scarcity, or maybe the strategy of constraint, mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the 2018 national defense strategy. You were the lead architect. You were the um, assistant secretary of defense for strategy and and force development. I always want to get the, the title exactly right. Um, and it uh, was described as uh, one of the, the biggest revisions of defense strategy in a generation. Um, how so? And, and how did you think that that NDS, as we would say in DC, uh, the national defense strategy was different from what came before it and what's going to come out now is coming out right now under the Biden administration? 
Well, I think somebody uh, was working who had kind of a role in in the process uh, suggested that that it was the most I would say sort of realistic or realist strategy since the Cold War. And I think what was most significant about it was a couple of things. I mean, ba- fundamentally, it it reoriented the department to focus on great powers. And I mean, as, as Secretary Mattis put it, we're, you know, it's no longer about terrorism. It's about great power competition. I mean, you can, obviously there's a lot more complexity to it than that. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think these things, I, I think strategy should be pretty simple. And basically, you know, for the 25 years after the end of the Soviet Union at that point, or a little bit more, you know, I mean, for a long time, we kind of didn't have a defense strategy because we were so much more powerful than anybody else over anything we would care to fight about that we could fight like multiple wars at the same time. So like in that situation, you don't really have a strategy because you just beat everybody at the same time. Like that's, you know. And at that point, I just want to, because at this point, I just want to ask to the degree that you also thought that that may have been a function. So you, again, in a very Colbyan type way, you've put it this, we, we had no strategy or, or less of a strategy because of the the fundamental conditions under which we operated. Yeah. There were also some ideological uh, currents at the time that were very powerful. Right. The end of history uh, theory by my colleague at Stanford, uh, right. Frank Fukuyama. And then also uh, coming out of the department and, and uh, Andrew Marshall's Office of Net Assessment, the ideas of the revolution in military affairs, at least articulating something that was going on. Did those also play a role, do you think, or was it just simply no? At the end of the day, we looked out at the world, said... We're not facing a real threat. Well, no, I think I think the ideological element is very real, but I think it was enabled by structure, right? I mean, those those elements existed before uh, in 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 bipolarity in in the Cold War, and but they were sort of regulated by the reality of of the scale of the Soviet threat. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it essentially became unchecked, and those elements in American political life were empowered, essentially, were, were opened up and became ascendant to some extent under Clinton, but really uh, most, most significantly under, under, under President George W. Bush. So, I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I'm, as you suggest, I'm a structuralist. I think things are largely determined by structure, but the question is like how much, how far, how fast, right? And that's sort of, so one of the things, you know, I think I mean, at this point, the Biden administration, the one thing it's probably continued from the from the Trump administration is the focus on China. And it seems that their defense strategy and its outlines is going to retain a lot of what we did in in 2018, including, for instance, the force planning construct, which is kind of the heart of the document, which was a big shift. I mean, so traditionally, I mean, the force planning construct sounds arcane, but it basically is one of the core levers that you pull in a strategy. It basically says to the to the military establishment, this is what you should size and shape and essentially train for over time. And the traditional standard have been some variant of what's called a two-war standard. We could fight two war, uh, two um, adversaries at the same time and beat them. But the reality was, as China rose and as R- Russia resurged, we were not achieving that. So our focus on two wars was leading us to focus on like these rogue states, quote unquote, that had been the problem in the 1990s. But now we're, in our view, we were neglecting the primary threat. So the national defense strategy said, don't worry about being able to fight wars at the same time, as much as first, make sure that you can win the big war. So it's kind of a one war plus. The analogy I think of, because there's, there are critics, particularly on, on you know, our side of the aisle, Misha, of the two war thing, which I just don't, that's not reckoning with the reality of constraints. I mean, I wrote a piece in Time recently. Even if we dramatically increase defense spending, we're still going to have to prioritize because as you've ably written over the years, China is such a formidable challenge. 
And the way I analogize it is, let's say you're in a boat um, and you've got a couple of holes in it. Uh, you know, you, we can think of Iran or North Korea as a hole that where the water's going to come in and it's going to get you wet. But other than that, you're pretty much okay. Russia is a hole. Uh, it might cause the boat to list, but you're definitely going to survive and the boat's going to be okay. You'll get it repaired. China is a major hole below the waterline and it's expanding. So you have limited resources and time to plug these holes. You have a limited amount of tar or whatever it is. What do you do? Well, the one more idea is make sure you plug that darn hole before the waterline. It's not to say the other holes aren't a problem, but let's let's rack and, st- and that's the kind of strategy discussion that we need to have. That's not without that's not without constraints. Some people say, well, you're neglecting the simultaneity problem. It's not neglecting it. But what a strategy is is saying analytically, rationally, we're deciding that this is the biggest problem. The other ones we can mitigate, and that's the kind of you know that that's the biggest thing. The focus on China. The focus on, to a lesser extent, Russia, the focus on making sure that we were ready for the big war and a, and a restored focus on what you could think of as like high-end war fighting, that basically the best way to deter is going to be by demonstrating the other side that we're ready and we would likely prevail uh, to some degree. And in, instead of the kind of post-Cold War shaping and presence, and then I mean, we can get into some of this, but you're, you're familiar with like, you know, the Navy exists to show the flag. No, no, no. The Navy fundamentally exists to win the nation's wars. And so you contribute to that. And that's what you should be doing. And if you're not doing that, you should do something different. So those are the sort of core ideas. And in a sense, the book, it's not a memoir. I mean, boring bureaucratic stuff. But but it's it, I think of it as like a platonic, my own platonic ideal I, without bureaucratic compromise, without, you know, I mean, it's Secretary Mattis's document. So it's like, you know, it's written in his style, his tone at the end of the day. This is this is this is my full uh, full expression, but obviously very consistent with it. Is similar similar mindset. So the uh, and we're gonna we're gonna turn more to uh, the Republic of Bridge or the Symposium of Bridge in a second. Uh, but I, I'd like to ask you sort of to do some grading. Um, so it's been four years since that uh, NDS National Defense Strategy. Obviously, there's a lot more we could talk about that, but I think you've encapsulated the core change that it represented and why that was so important. And the, the core function, which is, as you said, is to get the military to shape itself to face that primary threat that, that we must deal with. Uh, where are we four years on? So the way I think about it, Misha, is that we're uh, compared to other defense strategies. It was a, it was a slam dunk. It's great. It's been implemented. People took it seriously. But compared to what it actually needs to be measured against, which is the external environment, it's not doing so well because we're not racing against ourselves. We're racing against China. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese continue to go gangbusters, um, 7% again this year. And that's off a bigger and bigger base. So... Um, you know, and I think it's encouraging that that the department appears to be in substantial continuity with the 2018 NDS, from what I can tell. But at some level, I think that's kind of a reflection of reality. To me, a successful strategy, like at some point, you have to reckon with reality, right? If it's significant enough. So it's like the fact that the sorry, not to be churlish, but the the fact that the administration says China is the biggest challenge to American interests. You know, I, I can applaud it to a certain amount, but it's like pretty obvious at this point, right? Like that's, I mean, you have to be willfully obtuse to deny that um, or biased or something. Uh, the, the, the point of a strategy is to be sufficiently ahead of the curve that you can avoid the bad outcomes. And we're sort of like, for instance, we're already in what people call the Davidson window, 
we are already in the the the, the time yeah, when it's possible. That, the Davidson window is is named after former uh, Indo uh, Indo Pacific Commander Admiral Davidson. He said in testimony about a year ago that the Chinese want to be able to take over Taiwan at the at the latest by 2027. But in a sense, it could be earlier. And so there's a lot of speculation about whether we're whether we're in a position or not where the Chinese might be able to do it. The Taiwan Defense Minister said a couple months ago that China is already capable of taking over Taiwan at a relatively high cost and level of risk, but still. So, I mean, at this point, it's got, and I mean, one of the things about the Biden administration that I would say is like, you know, I don't think guys like Tony Blinken and so forth came in thinking that they really wanted to bound the table on China, I bet. I don't know. Or I don't mean to pick on Blinken per se, but, but I think they're seeing a lot of information. You know, I mean, it's been years since I had that, but I mean, they're probably seeing a lot of information that's suggesting to them. I mean, I don't think they wanted to make great power competition or whatever they're calling it. I mean, it's ironic that they dropped great power competition because the guy who came up with it was Bob work, you know, right. who was really ahead of his time. I mean, along with Marshall and people like that, certainly very influential on me and on the national defense strategy. But I think, um, you know, the, I don't think they wanted to come in, but they're seeing the reality in the reporting and the in intelligence analysis and so forth and hearing it from foreign partners. But the point of a, a successful strategy should be sufficiently ahead of the curve. And now we're kind of already in it. So now we got to really focus on just, and, and, and that's also explains why I'm even sharper now than I was four or five years ago, because the situation is all the worse. You know, strategy is not, it's not like, I mean, it, it's it, the situation is dynamic. So strategy has to be dynamic. If we'd done a totally perfect job, five years ago and gotten the Pacific situation right, I might be like, hey, we could be more balanced, but we didn't. And the Chinese are continuing to, to go gangbusters. So we have to be all the more rigorous in our prioritization. So let's turn to the book uh, a little bit. And obviously uh, it's it's been written about in a lot of different ways. Um, it's extremely rich theoretically. So for those who are interested in, in theory, of strategy and the theory of international relations and theories of alliances and understanding at the base what they are and how they work. We'll find all of that in there. Um, and and it's it it would be something you could do in a seminar. We you can talk about all that in a seminar. You know, in a shorter podcast focused on Asia, you know, we sort of have to cut to the chase and and get to the the core points uh, or at least the points that probably have gotten the most attention and, and link it with some of the things that you've just been talking about. So let me just start with the provocative question. And we'll, we'll work from there um, without, I hope, misrepresenting the book, but certainly the takeaway for many people has been uh, this is how we need to figure out how to defend against a takeover of Taiwan. And weirdly, it's sort of slightly different from saying how we need to defend Taiwan, but we need to defend against a takeover of Taiwan. And I don't want to be too nuanced, but I think there are ways in which, in which you draw distinctions because the point, as you say, and I think is the point of any responsible military strategist, strategist is that we don't want to fight. You know, so, right. so how do you exactly. get to the point of not having to fight? But let me ask you the question. Why, in your view, is Taiwan the hill that America should die on? Why is Taiwan the fight that we should be willing to have? A small island of 23 million people, obviously traditionally for all of its history, a part of China in one way or another. Why there? Well, look, it's an excellent question. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's sort of where the rubber meets the road. But I think you're absolutely right that I come to that um, position deductively. It doesn't come out of some kind of affinity for Taiwan. I mean, I admire Taiwan, but I don't have any special affection for Taiwan. I'm just thinking about this from the interests of the American people, obviously in an enlightened way. I, I hope for the best for people on Taiwan, but, uh, 
but that's not my primary goal. And, you know, the, the Taiwan, the Taiwan fight is really about ultimately our own interests. And it's about China and China's ability to dominate the world's largest market area, which is, which is Asia. And I, I think that's becoming increasingly clear that those stakes are so significant. I mean, I think the American people understand it. I mean, they can see it in things like deindustrialization, the influence over some of our major corporations and elite institutions and so forth. Um, so I don't think I need to belabor that point. But if we want to deny China that goal, um, we're basically not going to be able or willing to do it by ourselves. We're going to need to work with others, right? So this gets into coalition politics, coalition formation, coalition cohesion and defense. And it's exactly, Misha, you put your finger on it very well, which is China's basic incentive to, to, to get to the, the rub is what I call a focused and sequential strategy. So again, I, I approach this always deductively, kind of from the best, what do, what do I think is the best strategy for China? And that's, again, a dynamic assessment. But I'm, if I'm trying to put my, my, myself in their shoes, I don't want to start World War III here meaning, you know, total war against a fully mobilized coalition. I think we can see that. I mean, look at what, how the Russians are failing uh, by bringing everybody together against them. I mean, Finland and Sweden look like they might apply to join NATO. So China doesn't want anything like that, but China wants to gain hegemony over Asia and basically be able to coerce us and others at home. How does it do that? It's got to break apart that coalition. How does it break apart that coalition without starting World War III? Well, Basically, I think you go after the parts of that coalition that are vulnerable, but also tied to the Americans, because the Americans are the center of gravity, because, and that's nothing to do with moral worth per se, but the Americans are the big heavy by necessity in this, what I call an anti-hegemonic coalition. You and I are big admirers of Japan, but it's a much smaller society, economy, military. India has a long way to go to develop, et cetera. So the Americans are the big heavy. Uh, and if you're going to if you're going to bring down the coalition, you got to basically go after that center of gravity, which is American credibility, the sense that every country in Asia is always going to be evaluating. Yeah, I'd love to not live under the Chinese thumb, but is it worth getting scorched over it or missing out on the party? Right. And that, and you know, you know, Asia better than I do. Uh, I spent a lot of time there myself, but that's a real dynamic in every society. Everybody wants to make money. Everybody wants to stay out of the, 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 the firing line, et cetera. So, but, but they're only going to have a rational basis for participating in this coalition. And this coalition is a kind of an, info, it's more of an idea than a thing um, is to, is, is to think it's prudent. And that's only if they can trust the Americans. And so I think Taiwan is China's best bet for that because it's tied to the Americans, whether we like it or not. Uh, they have a pretty good claim, relatively speaking, for the reasons you suggested. And to boot, it's a good, it's 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 uh, important strategically and militarily, including the defense of Japan. It's got semiconductor, high-level semiconductor. So there's it's kind of like overdetermined. But it's not that Taiwan is the end of the story. It's that if China were able to seize Taiwan, and my view is that they need to use military force to do that, uh, given that Taiwan doesn't want to fall under their thumb. Uh, it's not going to stop there. It doesn't mean that China is going to create a territorial empire. But if it is going to establish this hegemonic position, it's going to need to browbeat a few more into, into line. And that would probably probably be the Philippines, maybe South Korea eventually. And eventually, I don't think they'd need to go. They wouldn't need to sail into Tokyo Bay. At some point, the government in Tokyo would say, this just isn't worth it. We're going to make our, we're going to make our place in the new Sinocentric order. You know, it's been like that for many centuries past. We'll just, we'll just deal with it, you know? And that's the outcome that we don't want. The critical point, Misha, that you touched on as well is our 
interest then in Taiwan and in anywhere in Asia is not existential. It's not a hundred percent interest. It's important, but it's not, you know, a hundred percent, right? I, I, I equate it to like 70%. Mm-hmm. This is really important. And this is something that's often lost in the, in the and I, I tried to, I'm trying to resuscitate a bit that was more present in the Cold War, which is that really acute attunement in the strategic and the military conversation to how the war is fought, you know, how, the military you build, and what the level of cost and risk will be, right, for the American people. Because our interests are very great, but they're not total. So if we exceed a certain threshold, the American people are, you know, either will, they won't do it or they'll give up, like we saw in Vietnam, right? That would be the most infamous example. But many other situations you can find. And we don't want to get that. And that explains a lot of my fervor about prioritizing and denial is because if we can deny China's ability to invade and occupy Taiwan, seize and hold Taiwan at a reasonable level of cost and risk, we're much more likely to do it. And then the Chinese are likely to see that and they're less likely to try. So we'll have peace. So, and that gets back to this last point. If that's get back to the hole in the boat thing. If I'm thinking of how do I allocate across those risks, I want to, I want to do as much as possible to ensure that that's the world that we're living in. And this is some of the debates within the military community about do we need more forward forces or do we should we have more of a surge? My view is let's do both because I want to be super sure that we can do this because it's the most important thing. But I don't want to cross that seventy threshold. Thanks. Um, yeah, and, and for those who are hearing, we got bells going off all over the place here, probably because of what Bridge is saying. The bells are ringing. Uh, we'll try to uh, keep those to a minimum. So let me actually ask you about this question of uh, which ultimately, of course, becomes, as you noted, uh, it, it is a question of resources, a question of strategy, but it's a question of political will. And then that, in, in turn, of course, is affected by what is happening on the battlefield. Uh, and so you talked about the uh, essentially acceptable costs. Well, you have to have a, a, the correct strategy, but it has to be done at an acceptable cost. What What is it that gives you confidence as, as you worked through, as you said, deductively and logically, you worked through the issues leading to the strategy, uh, the preferred strategy that you have? What gave you the confidence that this could be um, maintained at a, as a limited war, that, that we would be able to maintain or determine that pace, that the Chinese would not break out, they would not escalate vertically, as some would say, or even potentially horizontally in a way that would just make the cost seem too much. How, how, do, you, how, how do you have the confidence that once you get into this, assuming you do get into it, I mean, we're, that's the point we're talking about, um, that we'd be able to control it? Well, I don't think we could control it. I mean, I, I dedicate a, a chapter precisely to this issue, well, actually several chapters in a way, uh, to this issue of how do we deal with a limited war and manage escalation. One of the, one of the sort of, and I, I know you're not saying this, but one of the sort of lamer critiques I've, I've encountered is people saying, oh, he thinks that we can to- you know, limit this war so easily. And it's like, did you actually read the book? Like, I actually don't think that at all. And in fact, I assume there would be significant escalation. The point is to frame a defense strategy and actually also a defense and political strategy. This is this kind of idea of the binding strategy that is always attuned to incentivizing China to be more restrained. So, you know, there are people who say a limited war is impossible. Well, I don't think that's a prudent assumption. There's never been a limited war between superpowers, but it's worth remembering that during the Cold War, both sides were planning for one, I mean, or planning for a very large war and certainly for some kinds of limited war 
the whole time. And right now, both the American and Chinese militaries plan for limited wars. And just rationally, if the Chinese know that we think a limited war is impossible, that our choices are going to be suicide or surrender to go back to, I think it was Nixon used to say, then they run the tables, right? Because if, if, you know, if I know that you're not going to do anything and I think that, well, yeah, I think limited war is possible and there's some risk, well, then I, I, should, I should press you, right? So by that same token, though, the, the best way to have deterrence and peace is for the Chinese to understand, whoa, those Americans, they're ready. They're prepared to fight a limited war. They're not blasé about it. They're not, they're not thinking that it's going to be controlled easily or anything, but they're ready. And I don't have a sort of a trump card play you know, I, I can't just shatter them by going up a ladder of escalation and just saying I'm good. Doesn't mean that we need to dominate at every level because that's not realistic against China. But it but it means, and that's why do- denial is actually a lower standard than dominance, lower standard than we pursued in the last generation. Um, but it's to say that they are not going to benefit militarily and ultimately politically by by escalating. But I mean, look, I don't. I, I think a war with China would be. I would definitely not advise it. It would be a horrible idea. Except we may not have a good alternative, and the, a better than just like saying, "Well, we could either surrender or we can launch a, the end of the world kind of attack on China." Let's have some way of potentially fighting it in a way that will keep the risks and costs at a reasonable level. And then, if the this is this kind of critical idea in the book of the burden of escalation, if China wants to do something apocalyptically crazy, well, that's going to be on them, and everybody's to see it. And that's going to that's going to you know change our behavior and others' behavior accordingly. Yeah, and I, and I'm I'm glad that you you actually clarified better the question that I wanted to ask, and you know made it made it more clear. And of course, and of course, having written a um, scenario of a, of a littoral war between the United States and China that is limited and is and is capped at a limited level, I, I certainly agree with the take that you have that first you can plan. And you you prosecute, and as you said, the ultimate gamble is is perhaps out of your hands. But but then this perhaps the scariest part of of listening to you talk about it is we don't seem to have that right now, right? What what you've done is created a way that, as you said, denial is a lower a uh, sort of lower level of, of of standard or a lower level of demand almost on on an adversary. Um, which would allow this strategic situation to be stabilized, hopefully. But if we don't have that, and then we stumble into something because tomorrow two planes collide or two ships collide, and we've we've been we've had that happen, and we've been very close to that happening. What level of confidence do you have today, since we haven't gone down the road that you've put in the book? What what do you think would happen? Well, that's what worries me. I, I'm actually I'm worried less about accidental escalation of the kind that you're talking about, I'm worried more that the Chinese would determine that it would be in their advantage to precipitate a major conflict. That because would be, we're not ready. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that we haven't done the thing. That's and, that, and again, you know, people, oh, Bridge, you're kind of unbalanced. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, I, I, another analogy, you know, yeah, we've got tennis elbow, we've got arthritis, and we have acute heart disease. Uh, how are you spending your time and money with your medical, you know, efforts? I hope we're spending it on a heart, on your acute heart disease, right? Because like, we've been talking about this specific pivot. This is one of the things that, I mean, you know, this drives me nuts. People saying, oh, it's the pivot to Asia's fault. It's like the pivot to Asia never happened. It never went through the formality of actually occurring. So we've been talking about it. I mean, the Pentagon has shifted more to China, so I don't want to undersell it too much in terms of the impact of the NDS. Again, we're not racing ourselves. We're racing with the Chinese, and they are just super focused. And they're at a scale that we have never encountered before. 
and, 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 and our muscle memory, particularly for people, I think who are older to get back to beating up on the oldies, they just don't, they just don't have it in their bones and, and they're finding it very difficult to adapt. And what I worry about in particular is that it would be a rational decision for the Chinese to move against Taiwan because they thought they had a decent enough chance to win and that they could succeed. And so one of the things that bother that, that I worry about with the, um, the, the current defense plan is that there seems to be a lot of focus on long-term. There's a lot of investment in R and D in what's called divest to invest. And I'm all for divest to invest. I'm all for long-term, but we are no long, we have to worry about the short-term and the medium-term now as well, because this is not, you know, when Bob work was talking about capability over capacity eight years ago, the Chinese didn't have the, we weren't in that window. So we could realistically talk about taking a knee, but now we can't. And so, you know, what's it, that we may have to divest to invest in order to get the right stuff, but then there has to be some plan for the near term, because if we decide to modernize for 2035, but the Chinese are like, oh, I see they're modernizing for 2035 and we're ready to go now. And they took a knee. Well, why don't I just move? Right. I mean, and this has happened historically. I mean, you know, because the three factors that I think there's a will over Taiwan, there's a way over Taiwan, and now there's a potential for a sense of urgency or a window over Taiwan, uh, among other opportunities to the Chinese. And if the Chinese can gain enough ground, we might have the best long-range missile system for 2037. But if they've already established a, a sort of impregnable position in Asia, it won't matter. So again, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a near-term obsessive. I'm just like we have to balance risk across time now. And if that means spending more money on defense, we should do so. But my, the, the point I make to my fellow you know, Republicans is we're not spending our way back to unipolarity. We'll be lucky if we can keep up with the Chinese. You know? And so that's the, key, that's the key, key thing, I think, to take away at this point. So before we uh, wrap up with a, a final question or two, uh, and, I, and I do want to ask you briefly about Taiwan. Let me, I'm sorry about Ukraine. Uh, let me let me ask you about one other uh, element in the book, sort of the, the wrap up, which is uh, the, the attempt to achieve a stable peace mm-hmm. um, in which you use the words detente. Mm-hmm. And 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 I've heard you uh, speak about that before. Um, to some, the, the concept of detente sounds like a surrender, mm-hmm. right, that we're accepting that, you know, we can't. And it's not, I don't even think it's necessarily a unipolarity question, but it's that um, that China, which which in many ways is the dominant force in Asia, will remain as such. We we will we will come to live with it, a peaceful coexistence, and we'll understand it. But that even even doing that, um, I think some might argue, means we'll continually be on the defensive and always, to some degree, losing ground because they are, at least for now inexorably or seemingly inexorably growing. So is, how do you respond to a, a critique like that, that detente is, it may be realistic, but it also um, surrenders the initiative. You know, again, the, the, the comparison would be with Reagan, who moved away from the detente of the Nixon era to say, we're going to roll back. It's not just containment, it's a, it's a rollback. And ultimately that was successful. Two very different societies, of course, very different systems. Right. But anyway, right. just wondering about your thoughts on that for those who are saying, you know, at the end of the day, this sounds almost like an accommodationist strategy. Well, it's a great, it's a great question. And thanks for, thanks for asking it. I mean, a couple of points. So, so this is very much, and this is a, a debate I have. I, I often, I think people, uh, not you, but, but others sometimes 
conflate or, or mix up two, two categories. One is what is our basic goal here and how do we think about it? And then what are the tools we have available and what are the arenas that this competition will go into? And my view on the first one is our goals are not to transform China. That is not our ultimate goal. Our, and I'm not suggesting that's your view. Our goal is to protect Americans' prosperity, security, and liberties, along with those of our allies, because that's necessary. We have to have a sort of a, a enlightened self-interest, common goods, right? But that, the, I want to find what the, essentially the minimum, not like truly the minimum, but basically a minimum reasonable standard for what will achieve that, because I also want to avoid the other side, which is something that people, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, sort of nostalgia for the Cold War going on right now. And it's like, we almost blew up the whole world, you know? <laughs> and we got into Vietnam and there were the McCarthyism and all this. Like, right. we don't want to repeat that, right? We don't want to repeat the excesses of the Cold War. We want to pe- repeat the success of the Cold War. But to me, the lesson of the Cold War is kind of like, don't get carried away. You know, it's Project Solarium. It's like, okay, this is going to be a long thing, that aspect of it. And that's what I'm trying, because I see and a lot of friends of mine are like, we're going to change the, the Chinese government and it's going to be all over and they're going to be freedom. And then we can get out of Asia. And I think that's wrong because I actually think even if the Chinese are democratic, they're like, we're likely to have big problems with them because they're so strong. And the other thing that I would say, so basically what I'm saying here, and I want to guard, in fact, I'm very confrontational now vis-a-vis China, precisely because of the point that you're raising, Nisha, which is we don't want them. We need to reset. That was one of the logic behind the national defense strategy and other parts of the Trump administration was to reset expectations. We don't want it. We don't want detente now. Now we want, we need to reset from, to, and then to get to a position of strength, then detente will be possible because then the Chinese will have an incentive not to, and we won't have a super That's different than how do we think about the use of values and democracy and ideology, et cetera, as a tool of state power, which it certainly is, and as a form of competition. So one of the critiques I, come, I get from a lot of, you know, China, kind of the new new generation of China types, yeah, you're underappreciating the ideological nature of the Chinese Communist Party. I'm like, well, I... I don't, I'm not saying that they're not thinking about ideology, that they don't, but I'm just saying what's in it for us. So we, yes, we should use values, ideology, et cetera, for our own purposes. But we also, this is also relevant here too, that we not get carried over because a lot of the countries that we're going to need to work with are not perfect democracies, because particularly in Asia, which is the most important theater. So I think that's the thing. The only other thing I would say is that if we look at, I mean, Reagan's strategy was successful, but Russia, we have a hostile relationship with Russia right now. So in a sense, you had success and Russia's still a problem. And I think that's people kind of like, like, yeah, you went, you had the victory of Yeltsin, but then you've had Putin. And that to me is suggestive that like the China problem, even if we get some Yeltsin like figure in China, you're likely to get a Putin. I mean, you know, not to be too Procrustean, but you know, something like that dynamic because China is an incredible. And I mean, I think, you know, you're familiar, you talk to the Japanese and others they don't see this primarily as an ideological. It's not like if China turned into a democracy tomorrow, the Japanese would not be worried about the Chinese, right? I mean, Japan was, a, I mean, it had an imperial system. You would know this infinitely better than I, but it had, you know, features of a parliamentary system when it was, at, you know, in the early 20th century when it was beating up on China, for instance. So, I mean, it's not, uh, that's kind of how I, but, I, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think how to negotiate that is going to be, but I do think there's a tendency just to kind of final thought, in the blob and in the sort of transatlantic conversation, there's a very ideological sort of values oriented, but actually I think in the actual conversation with China and the conversation in Asia, that's not the right way to talk. I think the way that I'm talking is actually going to be more effective 
for coalition formation and cohesion, you know, not only with the Vietnams and the Thailands and the Malaysias, but even the Indias and the Japans. And, you know, it's going to be more important to talk in this, in this way and have a goal that's not millenarian, if you will. Well, it's, it's really, it's a detailed and, and I think most importantly, incredibly clear, you know, response to the question. It's not necessarily the most important question, but I think it points up. No, I think it's critical. I think it's a critical question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think it points up a lot of the ways in which your thinking uh, is different um, from, from many of those who deal with the question. And uh, also, of course, redolent of uh, John Mearsheimer, who, who I interviewed a few months ago in the sense of, you know, he said the same thing. It doesn't matter if China's democracy or an autocracy. And I, I actually brought up the ideology question. And I think, you know, folks like me who were, you know, trained initially in the the waning years of the Cold War, when of course actually could have made the argument that ideology didn't matter at all to the Soviet Union, but you were you were trained to understand the ideological sources of what had right. had ultimately eventuated into this this uh global conflict. Um that all of that seemed, again, with that sort of end of history to be dropped. And so to then hear what Xi Jinping says and what the Chinese say about ideology in the party is that, that it is important. But your point, I think, is just extremely clear and extremely extremely persuasive and, and, and important in terms of understanding from our sets of interests what we face. You know, the Chinese will do with ideology what they will. What does it mean in terms of how we respond to to all of this? So, look, we've we've gone long, and and you've been very generous, and I mean, we could really keep talking uh, a long time. I say that about most of the podcasts, but I really mean it on this one. We could just keep going. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> let me let me just ask you briefly about uh, Ukraine, and if if what's happened in Ukraine, and of course, in the book, you do make a point about. Uh, again, getting away from the two-war standard, focus on the main thing, but uh, at the same time, there might be one carve-out, and that carve-out would be a Russia, Russian attack on a NATO ally. Now, Ukraine's not NATO, but we have seen movement there in a way that we haven't seen in Europe for, for decades. Has that just impacted any of your thinking at all on this? Or are you still pretty well uh, said in the sense of, you know, this is what we need to focus on, and then, you know, what, what are we going to do in Europe? I don't know, but how, does that, how are you thinking about that today? Well, I, I self-identify as a, as a hedgehog in the Isaiah Berlin thing, so you, that won't surprise you that I, I, it has not. I mean, right. I think, I mean, if anything, I would, I would support it under any circumstances, but I think that how things are going in Europe suggests that, that it's all the more prudent to focus on Asia. We should do so anyway. And I mean, I, I, in the book, as you nicely recall, I do talk about specifically a Russian attack on NATO. Uh, as as one of the you know the tougher t- scenarios to deal with, but I mean the stakes are greater because Asia is more important and China is a much more formidable challenge, and and also the other Asian states are far less capable of balancing China than the European states are of Russia, and so we've seen a few things that just to me actually it's kind of weird to watch the debate right now because it's like oh there's this sense among a lot of people that's like oh this focus on china was mistaken and i actually think nothing has changed about china if anything what's happened is that the the russians have shown themselves and i'm i'm hesitant to discount them but it does seem that they're less formidable than we thought and the europeans are finally getting off their duffs so that to me if you just look at it structurally that means oh yeah we should totally focus on asia because they're finally getting their act together in europe and the Russians are going to take years to recover their military, conventional military capability, I think. Um, so I think that to me, that that makes it. I mean, my view is that there are three basic non-negotiable missions of the armed forces. People ask me, well, how much 
why don't you know i my view is that i think it's kind of and i get into friendly debates with some of our, our mutual friends about this like i think it's a little bit special pleading to say oh we should double the top line you know a defense spending my view is i'm a defense strategy guy it's for the american people to decide and the representatives and kind of more general minded people to decide exactly what what i'm what i say is i think these things are these things are absolutely non-negotiable for our basic interests and then we should spend whatever that requires and then i think there's an, an additional thing that you mentioned and the three things are prevent china from dominating asia have a nuclear deterrent that allows us to not be dominated by anybody and that means both russia and china and have a low cost counterterrorism thing and i would suggest having an additional smaller mission which is contributing to nato's defense with the europeans taking the lead and whatever that costs i think that's what we should spend ideally we would spend not so much because we prioritize accordingly and we cut things that we don't need but that's what i that that's where 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 i come out but i believe if anything i i actually don't even know what you would why would we double our presence in europe when the russians are are showing their limits and the europeans are doing more that's like doesn't make any sense to me you're you're uh rigorously logical, which of course is not always a, uh, a feature of thinking in DC or, or the debate. So last question, let's go full DC. Last question. What's okay. next for bridge Colby? What, what is it? Well, you never know me. I mean, you know, this, I mean, look, I obviously I'd love to serve in the government again, but you know, you never, you never know what I'm trying to do. Uh, and I think you are too, if I could speak for you, but is try to make a, a dent. Somebody has to, is to try to try to make a dent on the the way we think strategically and the and the way we, we what we do and i think my what i'm trying to have my value add be is like here's a book and a, and a set of arguments that are i'm flattered that you would say they're clear and hopefully persuasive and it says it gives a sharpness to the debate that people then have to say it okay there, i see where we're going to have to grapple with this set of facts and so you know i never you know you're going to be miserable if you're always looking for the next job but i think if i can if i can make some progress on that uh then i i i will find that satisfying and i and i joke i'll never have a better job even if i do go back in the government than on the job i had in the pentagon because i was senior enough that i could have an impact but i wasn't so senior that i had to do with all like the you know, all these terrible political skit. I could really focus on the strategy and, uh, you know, I'll never, I'd never have that, probably have that, that chance again. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, um, that's what I'm doing. And that's what, you know, the marathon initiative that my partner, Wes Mitchell and I set up, that's what, you know, has enabled us to be able to try to drive forward this uh, debate and conversation on great power competition. So in that spirit, it's really wonderful to be able to talk to you here uh, on the podcast, Misha. Well, I appreciate it. For those who don't know, just a quick note, Wes Mitchell was the assistant secretary of state for Europe uh, for, I don't know, do we divide it between West and East? I don't think so. It's just West. I mean, that's, that's the old cold warrior in me. Yeah, right. <laughs> West and East. I think he had Europe and Eurasia yeah. even. So it's, you know, it's, it's a real. <laughs> exactly. So, and that's the marathon initiative, which that's is right. a, uh, which is a group that, that you had up. Um, well, for those of you who were listening carefully in the back- background, you heard bells going off, you heard things dropping on the floor. And that's because I was blown away by Bridge, as usual, <laughs> blown away by the coherence, the clarity. And I'm, and I'm actually not joking. Um, the Strategy of Denial is the book. It is uh, obviously a uh, being seen as a seminal addition to the literature. And that's, that's what you said you wanted to be able to have that impact. I think you are. 
Um, it's, it's obviously there are those who disagree and those who think you should have gone more. That's the way that means it's a good book because you're it, over it, the target. If you're getting black, right. That's exactly my view. <laughs> right. If, if you're getting buffeted, that's, that's it. So, um, once again, we've been talking to bridge Colby, uh, who's written the book, the strategy of denial about China, about, uh, defending Taiwan, our allies, and really about what our stakes are in the Indo-Pacific. So bridge, thanks so much for joining us on the Pacific century. Thank you, Misha. Real pleasure. Well, I'm Misha Oslin. Thank you for listening in to this episode of the Pacific century, and we will see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.